Well, good morning. Welcome to Fellowship of Huntsville. We are approaching Christmas. Actually, I think Christmas has already begun. And so hopefully it has in your homes and with your families. And some of you may have family here or college students that are home. And uh, just enjoy the time as you can. You have the opportunity. How blessed we are. Blessed to see our children singing. Blessed to have children home. Blessed to uh, have family. And this is a great opportunity to spend time with them. If you are visiting with us this morning, we'd love to hear from you. If you can fill out a card, it should be in the seat, underneath the seat in front of you. Fill it out either electronically or place it uh, in the box in the back. That's also where we take offerings there. So if you would, if you would open up with me to uh, Luke chapter 1. And if you'll, so we'll start in verse um, 46. This is a, a song or a prayer that Mary has with Elizabeth. And this is when she goes to be with Elizabeth and Elizabeth realizes this is my savior that you are carrying. And she responds and John the Baptist, uh, who's still in the womb, erupts in her, spins whatever he does in that moment. And, uh, and then Mary responds with, with this. So we're gonna start in verse 46. It's Luke chapter one. It says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my savior for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are, and I thank you for this time of the year that we remember who you are in coming to this earth as a man, being born, living, dying, and then raised, being raised again. Lord, that you will give us life and life that we can only have through you. And we say this in your name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. You would just open your Bibles to that passage that was just read. And uh, that is what we're going to cover. If you're visiting with us, we're actually going through the Gospel of John. And when I got to this passage of Scripture, you know, uh, and the passage that I'm on is verse 14, where it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth decided to uh, unpack that thing in four Sundays, and we'll actually cover that verse next week, the birth of Christ. Uh, but we'll kind of do a uh, Christmas Advent, give a little background to it. And so today we're going to look at the uh, uh, Magnificat of Mary that was just read and take a look at that and look at some of the qualities that are going to be inherent in this Savior that's going to come and what he's going to be. And uh, so if you join me, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and we'll begin. Father, we come before your throne, thanking you, Lord, for this day, for this opportunity that's before us. Pray, Father, 
for your divine direction and guidance as I teach this word that, Lord, you keep me from error and help me to rightly divide your word of truth and explain it clearly and accurately that your people to receive it and uh, use it in their life, Father, to better serve you and bring you glory and honor. For it's in Christ Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen. Remember last week when I was talking about the angel came to Mary and it, and it said in verse 29, it says, but when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. So she was troubled when she saw the angel. Then verse 34, she was confused because it says, then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? Because this angel was revealing to her that she was going to bring forth a child and the child was going to be uh, God coming into the world. And this was a very puzzling thing to Mary. And he explains it and such. And then the comment is made in verse 36, where it says, Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren, for with God nothing will be impossible. And so she has a living example right there of her elderly relative in old age that was barren all of her life. Now she has a child and it's like everything comes together for Mary. And she sees that. And in verse 38, she says, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She was very confused. She was very troubled by this. But then it's like a peace came upon her and she said, let it be, let, let it be. She goes and sees Elizabeth and when she sees Elizabeth, she states this song or prayer, doesn't really define which one, but it's really a combination. And so we call it the Magnificat of Mary. And there's a reason for that because in the Latin, when you look at this passage, it says, my soul magnifies the Lord. In Latin, there's the phrase, magnificat anima mia domina. It means my soul magnifies the Lord. And so they've taken the first word from the Latin statement and they call this the magnificat of Mary is what it's called. So if you ever hear someone mention the magnificat of Mary, this is what they're talking about. And a lot of churches, it's a part of their liturgy that they'll read this. Uh, and what it means is Mary's just simply exalting or glorifying God. She she's, has this statement that comes forth from her. And so she says in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. She's blessed as the mother of Christ. And she's remembered as the mother of Christ. But she says, you'll remember my lowly state. And if you remember last week, I talked about Nazareth was a city so insignificant, it wasn't even located on maps until archaeologists found evidence. I mean, people denied the existence of Nazareth 
Even though Jesus was called the Nazarene and called Jesus of Nazareth seven times in the New Testament, no one really knew where the city was. And through archaeology, they discovered the city and they, they were able to verify that it was in fact a city that existed. And that's how insignificant Mary and that's how insignificant the city of Nazareth was. But in reality, that's how God does things a lot of times. He takes that which is insignificant, that which is unimportant, and he turns it around to make it something great. And that's how God does. And, and, and Paul even explains that later in the New Testament. He does that with our life, too. He takes insignificant people that are nobodies, and through the work of Christ in our life, they can become a somebody. Their life can be changed radically and different. And so Mary has this song, and in this song, what she's going to talk about is, in exalting the Lord, verse 49, she's going to talk about His holiness, Verse 50 is mercy. 51 and 52, his strength. 53, the way he fills our hunger. And 54 and 55, his promises are kept. He fulfills the word that he puts forth. So beginning in verse 45 here, she says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. It says two significant things about person of Christ there. She says, he is mighty. The word there, mighty, is the word dunamis and, or dunamai. And the word means to have inherent power, the ability to accomplish what one desires. And that is a perfect picture of Christ, because if you followed the little play that was up here, when they were reading, they read the introduction to John, where it talks about Christ creating heaven and earth. And, it, and it's a demonstration of his power. The Bible itself begins in the book of Genesis, rolling out God's creation. And what God's doing in Scripture when he does that is he's establishing himself as the one of all power. That everything that exists in the physical world proceeded forth from him. And so there's some inherent truths involved in that. And one of those inherent truths is that if he created heaven and earth, and every physical thing that exists in the world, he sits in authority over it and he sits with more power over it. The scriptures go on to tell us that not only did he create heaven and earth, but he also sustains it. He keeps it together. Scriptures also reveal to us that not only does he create heaven and earth, not only does he sustain heaven and earth, he is interactive with his creation. All right. Hence, his name is Emmanuel, God with us. And so he is with us as believers. He's a part of our life. And that's the power of God. That's the power that he has. But it also says, and holy is his name. When you see a reference to name in the Hebrew, in the understanding in the Greek early church period, name means more than just a title. You know, when we have a child born we always ask the question, what's their name? And then someone will tell you what their name is. And we kind of just pick names uh, for various reasons, usually because of a previous relative, someone that's very important or significant in the world that we live in, or simply because we just like the name. But in the Bible, when it talks about name, it's talking about the character 
or the way that person was. When we talk about the name of God, what we're talking about is not his title, God. We're not talking about his name, Yahweh. We're talking about the person of God. When we talk about the name of God, all that he does, all that he is. And we can define that with the attributes of God. The attributes are his characteristics or his character traits that he has. Well, one of the character traits of God is that he is holy. All right. The word holy, as it's used here, is the word hagios. And hagios means separation or purity. You know, when we talk about something being holy, a lot of times we get different images in our mind. But whenever you hear the word holy, think about this. Holy is anything that has been set apart and is unique and different than other things. Uh, I've used the illustration before. It's a very good illustration, uh, not because I thought of it, but because I think that it defines the word good. And I was growing up, we had common everyday dishes in the house. And then come Thanksgiving or Christmas or a special event, my mother would break out the holy dishes. They were the, the real china and the real silver. And her complaining about having to polish all that silver, she'd polish on it for a good day. And then we'd eat with that silver and it was put away for a year. But that silver and those plates were holy. And they're holy in the sense that they were used for a specific purpose or use, okay? When we talk about God being holy, what we mean is that God is separate from and different from his whole creation. He is a holy God, all right? Bible also talks about you and me being holy. How do I become holy? How am I holy? I am holy when I am separated and devoted to God, okay? God makes me holy with imputed righteousness, but I live in holiness when I live in obedience to his word or I live separate from my sin unto his word. Amen. All right. So another unique thing about the God of the Bible is the God of the Bible defines himself as holy. Most gods in religions or so-called gods in religions do not define themselves as holy. They mainly define themselves as wrathful. Or, or vengeful or mean. And the whole idea behind many of these religions is you have to appease this God. You have to do something to please this God, to have favor with this God. And so it's a picture of manipulating a deity to what you like. And much of religion revolves around that. Religion is the whole act of man trying to get God to do something, whether that's accept him or to bring favor into his life. That's the whole idea behind it. The biblical representation of God is that God is holy and separate from his creation. That's established in the very first part of Genesis when it talks about creation. And it's carried all throughout the Bible because God gives specific ways that man can come into his presence. You go into the Old Testament, God gave Israel his law. 613 commandments. And he said, this is my standard. This is who I am. I proclaim my name unto you. My name is holy. And he gives these standards. And what each one of these standards does is it shows man 
where man comes short of where God is. That's the idea behind it. Because the purpose behind the law was not to make a man right with God. The purpose behind the law was to show man he was not right with God and that God had provision for man. And in the Old Testament, that provision was revealed through the sacrificial system whereby people would confess sin unto an animal and the animal would die in their place. Their blood would be shed and then that blood would be placed upon the altar to cover the sin of man. And then ultimately God sent his own son. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. The Lamb of God comes into the world. He is 100% man without sin. He is because he is born of a virgin. He's 100% God and undiminished deity. And so part of him can reach the God and the other part can reach the man. He has complete connection to God. He has complete connection to man and his humanity. And he becomes the rightful substitute for mankind. And he goes to the cross as a human, takes our sin upon himself. His blood is shed and his blood atones for our sin. And when we believe in him, we receive that forgiveness. All right. And, and all that's about because God is a holy God. He's separate other than apart from his creation. And that sets him apart from all the other so-called gods in the world. Our God is a holy God and he has a certain standard. And if you're going to come into the presence of this God, you must meet his standard. And our obedience and the gifts that we offer and the worship that we give is not to manipulate or please that God. It's because it's demanded of that God from us. It is our reasonable service is what Paul refers to it as. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So it's command. That's all in the imperative, meaning it's something we're commanded to do. All right. And so Mary says that he is a mighty God. OK, but his name is holy. He's separate. He's other than he's special. She goes on and she talks about in verse 50, if you'll look there. She talks about his mercy to those who fear him. Look at verse 50 and it says, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. God's merciful acts. What is mercy? Mercy is the display of pity to meet the need of another. And that's what God does. God is merciful to us in that he is he shows pity towards us for who we are. He gives us less than what we deserve. He meets our deepest needs that we have. But it says something else about his mercy. His mercy is on those who fear him. Now, the idea of fear of God, the actual word is phobia. It's where we get our word fear from. But, the, but it, what it means is, as believers, we reverence God. We recognize him for who he is. And we come under him. We submit to him. That's what true fear of God is. Two categories of fear. The believer's fear of God is a humble submission to him. 
an idea that I should I should show reverence towards this God because he is a holy, righteous God. And everything that I have, I owe to this God that I have. The fear that the lost world shows is the fear of trembling and certain vengeance and wrath that is going to come upon man. When you look at the in judgments on mankind, the terror that is present in the lost community is because of the wrath of God that is going to be poured out. That's not what he's talking about when he talks about believers. My fear of God is that I respect God and I revere God for who he is. Let's look at it in scripture. Go with me to Psalm 25. In Psalm 25, the psalmist says this, Psalm 25 and 14 says, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. In other words, when you fear God, you can receive insight from God. You are teachable. When we humble ourselves and bring ourselves under God, we're therefore we're teachable and we can we can understand him better. Look at Psalm 31, Psalm 31 and verse 19. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you fear in the presence of the sons of men. So you see. The fear of God brings God's mercy and blessing into our life. We put ourselves in a position of humility before him. Psalm 103, Psalm 103.11 says this. Psalm 103.11 says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. And each reference that you see, just like Mary said, the fear of God brings the mercy of God. Look down at verse 17 of this passage. It says, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. So you see over and over in scripture, the connection between fearing God and receiving the mercy of God. Because the opposite of that means to not have fear of God, to not reverence God. And the scripture speaks of that too. In Romans chapter three, Paul gives, an, gives a, a witness to the sinfulness of man. And he describes beginning in that ninth verse, Romans three, nine, what the sinful heart of man is like. And he says, what then? Are we better than they? Speaking of the Jews, okay? That's what he's speaking of. Because Genesis, I mean, Romans 1, he deals with Gentiles being guilty before God. Romans 2, he deals with the Jew. And what he's done is he says the unreligious and the religious are both guilty before God. And so that's what he's talking about here. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, that all of mankind is sinful and come short of God. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. And with their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In a way of peace, they have not known. Then he quotes from Psalm 36, 1, in the very last verse there, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Man in his natural state does not fear God in the sense of reverencing God. They fear God in the sense of a terror coming forth from him. And so Mary says in this passage, he will have mercy on those who fear him. So the best position of being with God is to show reverence to God, to show respect to God and to recognize him for who he is. He moved, she moves on here and she says, for he has shown his strength in his arm and he has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Now, when you read that, it's all sounding in the past tense. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their heart. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and he has exalted the lowly. From the English version, when you read that, it's, it's reading as all is in the past tense. But what is actually occurring in this passage is what is called a prophetic aorist tense. And a prophetic aorist tense is when prophets would speak, they would get a vision from God to see the end result of what God was doing. And it was so real and certain that they spoke of it as something that had already taken place. Because what she's proclaiming here is the person of Christ. She's proclaiming the baby that's in her womb and what he's going to be and what he's going to become. And when she speaks of his judgment here, of his arm, a picture of his strength and how he scatters the proud in the imagination of their heart. And he puts down the mighty from their thrones and yet he exalts the lowly. She's seeing what Christ is going to do as a completed act at that present tense time. It was so certain to the prophets that that's how they proclaimed it. Clearly, that's going to come in the future. And, and we say, why is that clear? Why is that certain? Well, folks, since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, one of the organizations I'm a part of is Voice of the Martyrs. And I get their magazine monthly and I read them and, and understand them. And I've studied the martyrs of Christian faith and such. And since the resurrection of Christ, there's an estimated 70 million Christians have been martyred. That means killed for their faith. 70 million. And they said that the majority of those that have been killed have been killed in the 20th and 21st centuries. That's when the greatest killing has taken place of Christians. Current estimates are there are at least 100,000 Christians murdered a year for their faith. 
Now, folks, you think about we live in a country where there's a lot of freedom. But many of those countries where they suffer under the hands of persecutors like that, they at one time had freedom in their faith, too. And so we see that we see this injustice taking place. We see the world gradually moving towards darker and darker times. And so many stand back and say, what's God doing? Why does God allow this? What's going on? It's because God hadn't completed his plan yet. He hadn't completed his purposes yet. You look over in the book of Philippians. If you would turn there, go to Philippians chapter two. And Paul speaks of the person of Christ in this passage. And this lowly baby laying in a manger is more than just a baby in a manger. He is a king that's going to reign supreme. Verse five. Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, I've spoken of this before, but form means morphe. It's an exact image. It's, he is the physical image of the invisible God. And so when it talks about form, it doesn't mean that he took on the appearance of God. It means he is the exact representation of God. That's what morphe means. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So you see, there's going to come a day when every knee bows. There's going to come a day when, when Christians and those that are following Christ are not martyred for their faith. There's going to come a day when this king is going to show himself strong and he's going to execute judgment on the prideful and upon the arrogant that have exalted themselves against God. The book of the Revelation speaks of the coming of Christ. And it says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now this is the one that's in the manger that we just saw the program about. This is the one that is lowly. This is the one that was carried to the cross and crucified and died a horrible death to bear the sin of mankind. He's going to come and he said he is going to reign in righteousness and he's going to judge and make war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth came a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself 
will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive in the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's a picture of the wrath of God that is coming upon these people. Exactly what Mary is referencing in this passage. And she speaks of it much like John, as if the events have already occurred, but yet the baby has not even been born yet. And so she says in that passage, when she proclaims this about the Lord, and, and lifts up his greatness. She said, he has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. And he's put down the mighties from their throne and exalted the lowly. Those that are on the bottom will be on top and they will worship the king for all eternity. That's the kind of God that she's carrying right there. She goes on and she says, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he is sent away empty. You read a passage like that, and I hope surely you understand that he's not talking about groceries uh, when he talks about the hungry there. He's talking about being filled with that which is good. The idea behind Christ is those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Just look right here in Luke. Look at Luke chapter 6. Flip over to Luke chapter 6 and look with me, if you would, at uh, verse 21. Luke 6 and 21. He says, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And look how he contrasts this. You get to the verse 25 and he says, Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And the picture or the idea he's conveying is to be filled with spiritual goodness, to have your hunger for God satisfied by him. It's exactly what he says in the book of John. And we're going to get to it uh, in John chapter six. If you want to turn over there, go to the gospel of John and look in the sixth chapter, beginning in the 22nd verse. And we're going to see where he proclaims himself to be the bread of life. He's just fed to 5,000. And it says, verse 22, on the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there 
except that one which his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got in the boats and they came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And they found him on the other side of the sea. And they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal upon him. And then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said, What sign will you perform then? that we may see it and believe you, what work will you do? Well, maybe like feeding 5,000 with a couple of fish and some bread. That, that might be a good enough sign for you there. So he reminds them as he, as he deals with it. He says, our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, Moses, did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So when he talks about Jesus is going to fill the hungry, what's he talk? What's she talking about? He's talking about filling your spiritual hunger, meeting your spiritual needs. Well, then who are the rich? The rich are those that don't think they need the Lord. The picture of the unbeliever. I have all that I need. I don't need him. I have prosperity. I have good health. I have a good life. I don't need God in my life. And those are the ones that will be empty. But he feeds those that are truly hunger. Because he says the spiritual food is of far more significance than the physical food. And then lastly, speaks about his keeping his word. He says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. What's she saying? He's going to keep the promises that he made. This is who was born in that stable. He is a God that is holy. He is a God that is merciful to those who fear him. He is a God of great strength and power that is going to judge all sin in the world. And all those that have done unrighteousness, that have exalted themselves, he's going to bring them low. He's going to bring them down. He's going to fill those that are hungry and he's going to keep his promises. It's a picture of the life of Christ and what he's going to do. And she says it in a prophetic manner to reveal that. And folks, that's the true meaning behind Christmas. We are starving. We are poor. We are needy. 
We are broken. We're much like Mary. We're insignificant, poor people. And yet it is God who comes to us and brings us life. And that life was brought through his son. And that's what the true picture of Christmas is. Emmanuel, God with us, that God has come to live with his people. How can I, as an unrighteous person, live with God through the provision that God gave through his son, that his son would go to that cross and die on that cross and pay for your sin. And then at the same time, give you righteousness to enable you to come into the presence of God. That's a picture of what the Christmas gift is truly about. And that's what we rejoice about at Christmas time. Let's all pray. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you've never trusted Christ and your life is about religion or trying to do better, let that stuff go and receive the gift of God. The gift of God is eternal life, which is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did all necessary for you to have a relationship with God. And if you'll turn to him by faith and embrace him and feed upon him, you'll be satisfied in life. So as we give this invitation, if you've never trusted Christ, I encourage you to come and speak to one of the elders up front. And we'd be happy to tell you how you can have that gift of eternal life. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are truly good, that you are merciful to those who fear you that you have great strength and power, that you are holy and mighty in all that you do. And you're a God that keeps promises, promises to fill us with all that is good and promises to complete your plan as it's written in the book. Father, let us take rest in you and look to you for you and you alone are worthy. So Father, I pray that this Christmas we would embrace that in our minds and keep that in our thoughts we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.